Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 11th, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everyone. And guys, this is mm-hmm. episode number 666. What does I've it mean? I've been waiting what? for so <laughs> long. <laughs> oh, boy. Numbers. We're two-thirds of the way to a 1,000. Very cool. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. I guess that's one way to well, look at it. Yeah. How many yeah. more years, Steve? Uh, Until 1,000? Six. What? More years. Is that a coincidence or what? So this is our evil show. This is our evil show, yeah. You can't see it because it's, it's a podcast, but we're all wearing beards, like goatees. Even me. Yeah. Steve, Steve does, that mean you're, does that mean you're Dr. Evil tonight? I am. Call me Dr. Evil. And I have – I was sick this week, so I have a sore uh, throat. So it low, you know, I know I said it's low gravelly voice just in time for this episode. Nice. Not sure. Just it, by it, occurs, it occurs to me that some people might not really even know what the hell we're talking about. 666, it's just a number. But that's – it's six, mm-hmm. 666. It's called the number of the beast. Um, in most, uh, in a lot of manuscripts of the Book of Revelations, chapter thirteen, uh, in the New Testament, uh, this is this is mentioned as the number of the beast, and it's just basically, you know, in popular culture, it's an evil number, and you don't, you don't want to have anything to do with six six six. Yeah, we'll be getting into that in more detail later in the show. We want to get right to it. So, Kara, start us off with a what's the word. Well, what do you guys think the word is today? Could it be demonic? Demigorgon. Satan. Demon. Demon. Was that demonic the way I said that? Remember Demigorgon? Wow. (laughs) No, it's not Demigorgon. (laughs) Mephistopheles. I decided to go with demon because I think that it's an all-encompassing evil word. Sure. You know, I didn't want to go with devil specifically because I think that the devil is only one of many demons. But demon is an interesting word. I mean, it's got a lot of definitions. Probably the most common one, the one that we are the most useful it, or used to, I'm sorry, is an evil spirit, um, a source of evil, a source of harm. Uh, some people might specifically talk about the devil as being a specific demon. But did you know that demon didn't always have a negative connotation? No. I did not know. Really? It's interesting, right? Yeah. So a lot of times when we talk about the etymology of these words, I might go to the Latin or I might go to the Greek. And do you remember that episode where we talked a lot about PIE, Proto-Indo-European, which is this um, hypothetical common ancestor of most of the languages that are spoken today, the Indo-European ones. So that's like the root of definitely the Germanic and the um, Latin and um, the Greek languages that we're, we're used to, which are sort of at the roots. So lots of times when you're, when you're looking into etymology, most everything was Greek originally, and then it became Latin. But a lot of reconstruction is done trying to look at the Proto-Indo-European roots. And apparently, when it comes down to it, demon was used in literature, or at least the form of um, the Greek form of demon, which obviously has a different spelling, a Greek spelling, long before the Christians co-opted ancient Greek 
and kind of turned it into, you know, turned a lot of the myths into uh, myths that had Christian or even Judeo-Christian slants to them. And so when you look back to writings by Plato, when you look back to um, stories about Zeus and Athena and Mount Olympus, Homer apparently used the word demons just to refer to gods. Oh, wow. So a demon was just used to describe a deity, really. Like, ultimately, that's all it meant. And not until the sort of Christian tradition came in, on top of that Greek tradition, the sort of Latin tradition, did it start to move into a spirit and specifically one that was like a heathen or an unclean spirit. Prior to that, it really just meant a deity or a divine power. In some specific applications, you'll see that it was more of like a lesser god. So there were like the gods and then there were the mortals and then demons existed somewhere in between. And because of that, if you look back to its super, super basic roots, D M or die, which was how it was spelled back then, and mun, it actually breaks down to divider. The The root is to divide. And so it really has very little to do with the way that we think of demons now. But Socrates' demons were oracles. They were like actually kind of inward, uh, personal demons that were not negative, they were just a connection that people had to the divine. Pretty interesting. So a lot of times what you'll see is that demon is spelled D-E-M-O-N in its modern usage, and it's spelled D-A-E-M-O-N. Yes, yeah. That is meant to, in, in many cases, signify that we're talking about the earlier usage of the word, the non-evil usage of the word. So that- sometimes when you see that, that's why it's written that way. So I wonder if it was co-opted, you know, by early religions, right? You know, just morphed into something thought to be evil. It absolutely was. Yeah, it was like a kind of this Christian tradition who came in or actually the Jewish tradition who came in and started to draw these parallels and started to use the word demon to have a negative connotation. But previously it never did. Yeah, it's I like studying how current mythology that we, you know, modern religions uh, mm-hmm. how how those belief systems evolved to their current state it's kind of hard to believe in the inerrancy of the bible you know when you realize that this is you know that you could see document the historical arc of how all of these ideas came into place like the idea of angels of demons and gods and yeah and all those stories about resurrection and virgin mm-hmm. birth how they're just recapitulated over and over throughout right. history sure yeah yeah. Yeah. We talked on the show previously about Mithras. We talked about that previously. It has a lot of the same themes as Christianity. It's not identical. Like some people claim it's the, the details are different, but the broad brushstrokes are the same. And you could see how the, you know, the culture was how these cultural influences played out through this region, you know, where mm-hmm. in modern Christianity is just one particular manifestation of all of this, you know, but there was a long and deep history. Was that the Horus mythology? Well, Horus is another one. Yeah, and then there's also like Norse mythology and like, yeah, there's just all these parallels. Yeah. All right, let's move on. We're going to cover a mixture of sort of news items and some uh, themed content for this show. I'm going to start, as promised, with a discussion of the number 666. Where does it come from? What does it mean? How is it thought of in popular culture? Cool. As Bob mentioned, it's first reference in Revelation chapter 13. Oh, Um, 
And it, there are different translations, of course, but one translation is, Here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. There's um, <laughs> Some people think that the, the, the beast is Satan, but that. there's actually... It's a code. Know, the beast is actually not Satan um, what himself. What is it? Well, it's hard to know. It depends on how you interpret it. It could be... Right. Some the people vague, interpret the better. beast being Rome. Basically, and that revelation—you know—the revelation is a, a coded way of pol- like politically criticizing Rome for their treatment of early Christians in Greek and in ancient Hebrew. Letters had a number associated with them because they, they didn't have a number system; they just used their letters, and the letters had a certain numerical value, and that's that was how they denoted numbers. Mm-hmm. So, if you take that. The number six hundred and sixty-six, and you and you ask, well, what names or words? If you add up the values of their letters, would add up to six hundred and sixty-six. And maybe that the author was using that as a code to say, like, we know who the bad guy is, right? The bad guy is mm. it's a number of a man, right? He said it, it says it right there. It's a number of a man, and that guy's name is six hundred and sixty-six. Um, so the one, you know, popular answer among scholars, Nero Caesar, right? Is that it's, yeah, Nero Caesar in the Greek, right? The, the, but of course you have to, you know, it's not, not exactly Nero Caesar. It's, it's Caesar Neron, N-E-R-O-N. Oh gosh. Oh, interesting. And, you know, spelled a certain way and you have to spell Necron. it in the Greek. Yeah. <laughs> That's important. That N is important. Well, I'll tell you why in a second. So it's. Caesar Neron in Greek, and if you use the Greek numbering system and you add that all up, it adds up to 666. But some versions of the of Revelations in the ancient Hebrew give the number as 616, mm-hmm. 616. Have you guys ever heard that? Mm-hmm. Yes. No. Probably a type. Probably two, a type. Two minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so 616 <laughs> – is sometimes given as the number of the beast. Why would that be? So actually, that creates an excellent opportunity to triangulate. Because you could say, well, oh what names add up to 666 in the Greek and 616 yeah, in that's Hebrew? Right. Okay, it's like a Rosetta Stone kind of thing yeah. going on here. And that's Caesar Nero. It adds up to, without the N. The N adds 50. So without the N, it's 616 oh, in the Hebrew. got it. 666 in in the ancient Greek. And so for that reason, some scholars say, yeah, it's pretty clear that they're talking about Nero because Nero was particularly bad to the early Christians. And that would definitely be somebody they would single out as like, this is the evil dude. And of course, you know, the whole book of Revelations is full of symbolism that, of course, you know, modern doomsday, you know, ministers will interpret as prophecy about the end time. But it's clear that it's the references are all to the current time and have to do with, you know, with Rome uh, and with with Nero, etc. But did they think that Nero was like some sort of evil spirit incarnate? No, no, no. It's just political oh, commentary. Okay. This right. is just political. This is, you know, they're just, it's just all political commentary. But yeah. back then, like, everybody thought everything was a bit mystical, no? It, well. Like, it's hard to separate that, that kind of viewpoint because it was kind of pre-science. But he, they, they weren't saying Nero is a demon. They were saying Nero okay. is an evil guy who persecutes Christians, right? That's, yeah. That's what they were saying. And Rome is evil because of all the bad things that they do. The, it was sort of couched in this mystical, prophetic words because, you know, they, the authors would rather not be 
crucified for criticizing Rome. You know, so mm-hmm. it was a way plausible of, deniability gives you yeah, puts plausible deniability sort of way of communicating to your people so they know what you're talking about, but but the powers that be wouldn't necessarily have evidence against you that they could use to crucify you. So that's where the number comes from. But as Bob said, it has become iconic representation of Satan, of evil, of the beast. Antichrist. The Antichrist, yeah. So it's, you know, it, it keeps cropping up over and over again in popular culture, like the movie, The Omen. The mark of the beast was the number 666 as a birthmark on the head of the Antichrist, uh, for example. And if you know, if you look up, if you do like a Google search on various permutations about six six six, you get tons of popular and religious references references to it. It was actually challenging to wade through that to find scholarly, you know, discussions of it. But <laughs> yeah. I did find a, a website that has a Greek letter to number calculator on it. So, in other words, you can. Put it in name, and you know you could, and then it will tell you what the number adds up to. Oh, so of course, handy. I put your in all name? of our names. Oh, yeah. so yeah. Right. Steve, where are you? So, well, here's, I started with Bob. So if you put the, <laughs> put in the numbers, the letters Bob Novella, that adds up to exactly six hundred. Six hundred, Bob. <laughs> you almost made it. Cara Santa Maria adds up to seven twenty. All right. Aww. Yeah, you're you're over. Like the Price is Right. Yeah, yeah. Price is Right rules. I lose. <laughs> Jay Novella adds up to seven hundred and two. I beat Kara. Yeah, <laughs> no, we over. we both just lose. Oh no, you're over. you can't Evan, lose. Evan's lose very interesting. Yes, yes. Evan Bernstein and Skeptics Guide both come nice. up with the same numeric value. I like Ooh. that. Eight hundred and eighty-eight. Oh, oh so that's wow. so pretty cool, though. <laughs> that's cool, Evan. Which is, is. also a mystical number. What does it mean, Steve? <laughs> yes. It, it, that's the angel number. Oh, of course. Wasn't 777 the angel number? Well, it depends on what source you read. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, it's like people okay. just make shit up. So, yeah, but I could see why, like the <laughs> triplet. It feels coincidental. That's, yeah, it probably has some sort of special connotation. Right. So 888, I found one site that says the, the meaning of 888 is you have – Knowledge and wisdom to share. Oh. So, how appropriate is that? About the skeptics guy has knowledge and wisdom to share. <laughs> Not you, Evan. For, Evan no, I, I'm just part of the SGU. <laughs> oh, there you go. So, I, I did Stephen Novella and came up with nine nine six. That's ah. pretty close. The, the oh, first two sixes on its head. are flipped yeah. to nine nine six. So then I did SP Novella, uh-huh. and that was six nine six. Whoa. Oh, Coincidence? Gosh. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what significance? None whatsoever. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it just shows you, like, you know, what are the odds that we just put in – this are the first things I thought of. And it comes up with interesting numbers. You know, you could – if you wanted to look at some meaning in there, you could. Um, this, there are a lot of interesting things that add up to 666. By the way, like if you do the city New York – that gives you 666, the letters in the name of the city, New York. So clearly, that's an evil city. If you if you just add the, all the numbers on a roulette wheel, basically 1 through 36, that mm-hmm. adds up to 666. Don't <laughs> forget the zeros. Oh, wait. yeah. Have you found, Steve, that yeah. there in, – in doing your research, that there were any examples of 
such cultural fear around it that it's actually implemented civically. Like I definitely notice when I'm driving around that I see people have 666 in their license plate and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. But then I wonder if they're like, oh no, what does it mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and you I know just saw one no... today. I was driving around a car. Yeah. There you go. 666. What are the odds? I saw, I saw one the other day and took a picture because my boyfriend is also kind of obsessed with the number and you know, he's like, got a lot of like satan-y kind of stuff like tattoos and stuff like that um and so Whoa. i always text him pictures whenever i see it um i think he actually follows 666 people on twitter intentionally and if like somebody <laughs> closes their twitter account he'll like find somebody else but um <laughs> but i was just wondering you know how like there's no 13th floor on an elevator yeah. and there's no 13th row Sometimes. on an airplane like are yeah. there places where 666 has been taken out of the culture because people would think oh i wouldn't sit there i wouldn't go there yeah, absolutely. There's actually a name for that. It's hexacosioi hexa conta hexaphobia. What? The? <laughs> oh, no. Six 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 phobia. Gotcha. Yeah. Kara, I could not save my life by pronouncing that word. I just. <laughs> I don't think I could. I don't think Steve could. <laughs> <laughs> I did the best I could. I got the hexa part. Yeah, exactly. I got that there were three of them. <laughs> I once, I once was buying some candy at a gas station, and, and, uh, and I guess a couple things, and it came to like Ran, six dollars and sixty six cents or something. And, <laughs> and did you watch? Their I got expression? pissed because she purposely changed the amount of tax so it wouldn't, it wouldn't <laughs> write. And I was like, wait, why'd you do that? I was like, I was actually pissed. It's like, really? Come on. <laughs> she can't give me a receipt with six sixty six because what? Well, you're afraid of it? <laughs> afraid of a little number? He should have just looked at him like <laughs> a lot of people. I'll All right, so here's some examples. Have a reaction. Uh, Ronald Reagan and his wife Nancy yep. moved yep. to Bel Air, Los Angeles, and their their street address was six six six, and they had it changed to six six eight. Well, of course. Oh my god! Wait, this yeah, was the before he was like the president. That. Yes, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, governor. Yeah. No, his middle name. I think all of his initials. It's six six six. Right. Six. Oh yeah. Six letters. There's definitely the a lot of like punk rock um, kind of vibes with Reagan and the devil and things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if yeah they figured that one out. Well, how about this one, Monsanto six six six. Oh no! <laughs> Why'd you say go. that? Mark of the Beast six six six. Bio implant six six six. Oh boy! Oh my! Give me a break. Well, have you guys seen that movie Pie? It's just like that, where he becomes obsessed with this number and he sees it everywhere, and it it has all this like deep meaning to him. But really, all it is is like confirmation bias. Yeah, sure. Confirmation bias. <laughs> that was really bad, Evan. It didn't even really make sense. <laughs> I, hey, uh, I I hear your comments through the laughter. That's all I care about. <laughs> Uh, Kara, that's the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Oh, it's got where, a specific name. Yeah, so it's like when you when you first hear of something, or it comes to your conscious awareness, like a word, for example, and then you and then you start to hear it everywhere or see it everywhere. It is confirmation mm -hmm. bias. You obviously were seeing it everywhere before already, just didn't notice it because it wasn't part of your map of the world. But it's a manifestation of the fact that we encounter so many things every day. Like how many license plates do you see a day? Or how many numbers in any context do you see a yeah. day? Oh gosh, don't just get me pick, started on that. Just pick any number and then if it's in your if it's in your conscious, you will start to see it 
multiple times because you, you see every number multiple times, right? It's just Yeah, and also there's that there's like the what's it called? The coin flip fallacy. I know it has a specific name. Where like mm-hmm. it's just as likely that six 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 are in something as six five nine are in something. Because all these numbers are with replacement when you're looking at like Yeah. Or actually they're without replacement on a license plate. But still, it's it's just random. It's totally we're random. Pa- we're pattern seekers though. Yep. We like yeah. it. We want it. Especially evil patterns. <laughs> that way we know to avoid it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right, Jay, we're going to take a quick break from our evil theme, and you're going to tell us about Buzz Aldrin and aliens. This was a uh, a report that was published in the Daily Star Sunday, April 8th. Really, really ticked me off. I hate when someone as prestigious as an astronaut who did some remarkable things is being taken advantage of, especially in their old age. Just really, you know, it's just crap. You, you see this from time to time. You'll see, you know, people misconstruing something that an astronaut said. Like, really? Come on. So here's the story. There is a, a fabricated story going around the internet about how Buzz Aldrin, who is a former astronaut who flew both the Gemini and Apollo programs. I mean, this was the guy that flew with Neil Armstrong on Apollo 11, you know, the first mission on the moon. Buzz was the second person to walk on the moon. He walked on the moon nine minutes after Neil did. This is a, a veteran of, you know, one of my favorite times in American history. And as the story goes, uh, they're saying that Buzz took a lie detector test where he claimed, and it was proven, that he saw a UFO while he was in outer space. Now, just for absolute clarity, this is an utter fabrication. Um, it's, it's, you know, completely based on absolutely nothing other than the fact that Buzz said the exact opposite of that. So Buzz actually said on multiple occasions, but I'll just quote one of them that was the most recent. He was uh, in a discussion on Reddit, and he said that he saw something shiny outside of the window of his spacecraft, and he said he believes it was the sun's reflection off of one of the discarded panels from his own ship. So this is where the story gets weird, because you would think, okay, so Buzz didn't say that, and then you know this paper published a study and they're just wrong and making it up. But it gets really weird. So there's this company called the Institute of Bioacoustic Biology. And if you don't know what bioacoustics is, you know, in the in the scientific definition, bioacoustics answers questions like what sounds does an animal make and how how do the animals make those sounds, right? Bioacoustics. But they don't answer questions that deal with if a person is lying or not. And th- this is where this company I'm about to introduce you to went to. So the company is called the Institute of Bioacoustic Biology, and they, they said that they analyzed pre-existing audio recordings of NASA astronauts. And the company claims that by using a computer analysis program, they were able to do a vocal profile of Buzz. And here is what they said. Here's a paragraph that's out of their report. Aldrin believes what he is saying emotionally, but he has doubts intellectually. His ego, on a highly spiritual level, is solidly involved. He has a firm belief in what he saw, but logical awareness that he cannot explain what he saw. Therefore, he thinks he should be doubted. His gut-level emotions and system of integrity is well-grounded with the exception that he has some issue around people asking too much of him and expecting him to take care of things for them. For the benefit of the people, he wants his statements about his seeing a UFO to be believed. What? <laughs> right. Exactly, Kara. So not only does this statement contradict what Buzz has said on multiple occasions, it's highly doubtful that any computer analysis program even helped 
write or create that paragraph. Like that's not the type of thing that an algorithm would would spit out as the answer to analyzing somebody's speech patterns. Well, I don't even – what does that even mean, analyzing their speech patterns? That sounds like total forensic pseudoscience to me. It is. Like it is. It's analysis. exactly what it yeah. is. The, the thing that is most damning about these claims is that, first of all, lie detector tests are not even scientifically valid. And also, Buzz didn't take a lie detector test. They, they wow. are saying that their audio analysis – of these past recordings is is essentially a lie detector test. Oh, <laughs> gosh. What a – They should have picked a better like benchmark. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We're going to pick something that's Audio sort of pseudoscientific analysis? anyway. So I you went know. to their, their Facebook page. I went to this company's Facebook page and well, I was shocked. I was utterly shocked. <laughs> They're selling false things on there. They're selling pseudoscience right. on that Facebook page. I mean it huh. – if you just scroll down, I mean, you know, I, I could read some of the excerpts, but it's it's essentially snake oil after snake oil after snake oil. It, it, you've seen it a million times if you've ever ever done any any research like this. Like they have this thing called um, Sound Health Radio, and it's Dr. Kimberly McGeorge combines science with possibility with frequency master trademarked. You know, stuff what? like that. These are all words that don't make sense together. Science with possibility, Kara. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. All you have to As do is, to- is buy their trademark marked product, Frequency Master. You know, what I mean that like that's what they. <laughs> what does that even mean? Frequency Master. Hey, look, bioacoustics. Like okay, bioacoustics. Like uh, get with the program. Sticker chips. You know that you throw on yourself. Sticker yeah. chips. So I bring this up because this is kind of like in the wake of fake news. You know, you're, we're seeing just absolute one hundred percent manufactured crap. All to. Create content so companies can sell their snake oil, and they're using you know someone you know this person who I highly respect, and it just tweaked me. I really got angry when I when I read this article. I'm I'm finding that you know the disrespect adds to my my skeptical anger about this topic. Yeah, they didn't even have to use Buzz. I mean, they already had the likes of Edgar Mitchell and perhaps others to who have. Clearly stated their belief in UFOs and things. Well, why why they just stick with those, with, with someone like that? Because why, I think the Buzz Aldrin thing Buzz already existed. I think it was already a wives' tale, so they were utilizing that. Because I've definitely heard that before that Buzz Aldrin saw aliens. I didn't believe it, but I've heard it. Yeah, that 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 claim did not originate with them. Yeah, so they're basically just they they know that it has staying power, right? So they're co opting it. Yeah, but this Kara, this has a you know the ability an article like this could. Be one of the things that makes it slip into the common collective, right? You know, I think it already was in the common collective. It was in mine. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. But it, mm-hmm. but it, but this article is one of those types of articles that does that as well. Like you know, there's a, new, oh, a yeah. whole generation for sure. There are people that are alive today that are adults today that you know were not alive when the moon landings happened. And like were, me, yeah. Is there any connection between mm-hmm. like aliens and demons? Sure. Hmm. Absolutely. There actually is. There is a lot of there is a connection because the, the uh, a lot of um, ufology, belief in UFOs, belief in aliens is essentially a religion. You know, at the extreme mm-hmm. end, there are people who explicitly claim that all biblical references to demons and angels and gods or whatever are references to aliens and to primitive encounters with aliens. Mm-hmm. So there, there it's, there's a, the lines are totally blurred. You know, between you know that that end of the spectrum of UFO believers and modern religions, uh, including demons, you know, aliens as demons, and I think so you know, there you go. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, and and the bigger picture is correct that you know obviously there's a lot of diff- there's a lot of problems with misinformation, bad information on the internet. That's nothing new. And sometimes we miss the fact that you know the information isn't gullible or ideological or whatever. It really is just about selling something. It's just a marketing ploy. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm convinced that Alex Jones is. Just a performance artist who's selling snake oil. He is a sales. Everything else is bullshit. Just complete bullshit. Absolutely. I mean, talk about it. I mean, that's a commitment, you know, because he... I know. It's like the only reticence that I have to that idea, even though I do agree with it, is that it gives him a lot of credit. (laughs) You know what I mean? It means that he's actually good at what he does, which bums me. Yeah. He plays the character of of Alex Jones perfectly. Yeah. But I do think that there's some, you know, something in him that all he's doing is tapping into something that's central to who he is anyway. But yeah, he's just trying to sell like gold bonds and like what else? He sells the weirdest stuff and like like uh, doomsday prepper kits and stuff. Yeah, Yeah. doomsday stuff is big. They're all obsessed with gold. They think like currency is going to fall. Yeah, that's why. If you have nothing holding you back from being a scumbag, you know, you you could probably make some money in this world. I'll tell you why, Kara, because I honestly mm-hmm. think that um, some con artists target populations that they think are gullible. Yeah. Just like Sylvia Brown. I think Sylvia Brown <laughs> was a complete con artist. And He's she dead. believed that if, if, you, th- if you believe in psychic mediums, you're stupid, so I'm going to yeah. take money from you. And I think that Alex Jones... Uh, if you know, he himself said that this is a character I play on TV. Yep. You know, uh, when he was you know in the context of the of the custody, the lawsuit. Suit. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. and he's preying on people who, because of their religion or for whatever personal reason, have Ideology. an intense, deep fear that the world is coming to an end. And he's going after a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. He's going after the extreme. Like, if you believe, if you're entertained. If you have any kind of belief in the kind of stuff he's selling, then damn, you are a perfect mark for a con artist. All right, Bob. Yes. You're going to tell us about artificial intelligence trying to identify good versus evil. Ooh. Oh, boy. Yeah, this whole idea of artificial intelligence and morality has been in the news lately. I don't know if it's really just uh, – what's that word we, we mentioned earlier about just noticing it? But there definitely has been an uptick uh, lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, a- Amberish Mitra is a CEO and co-founder of Blipper. He wrote a blog that got my attention. Uh, it's called We Can Train AI to Identify Good and Evil – and then use it to teach us morality. That was my own emphasis on the word evil. Hmm. Um, so yeah, he actually did that. The, the whole idea seems ironic though, doesn't it? I mean, artificial intelligences in modern popular culture anyway, uh, they're in, almost invariably intensely malevolent, right? I mean, I just, last year I finished, um, the Robopocalypse uh, book series, which is wonderful, by the way. And man, the, it's, AIs are nasty, you know, almost ultimate evil. And we, we joke about AI research, you know, ultimately unleashing this Cthulhu-esque, you know, calculating, indifferent, evil force upon the world. And so so what is that? So what? We're going to make them moral? Is that even possible or, or worthwhile? So so I thought I'd just go over what this guy, what his idea was. Um, and I think it's kind of intriguing. So it's based on the idea that AI um, has become so interwoven within our society. And that's true, that it's time to consider what AI can do for morality and vice versa. Um, and yeah, that is very true. I mean, it's just becoming 
uh, more and more enmeshed in in our society and in the things that we do and the the software programs that we that we rely on uh, and the businesses that we create that AI is is really the killer the killer app uh, for the next few decades or or much more. Um, but mm, the, the killer the, app. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so this isn't really even a new idea or, or idle speculation. You know, what if an autonomous car encounters the classic trolley problem? Right, it's going to yes. happen. What if you? What if the car can't avoid hitting someone, but it can choose which one to hit? Yeah. You know, you're going to need to code that in there, right? What is so? How are you going to handle that type of morality, that type of decision that the that the computer is going to make? So, uh, Mitra says that in his post that this presupposes that we've actually agreed on a clear moral framework, <laughs> yeah. um, right? Though some, you know, there are. I'll just continue with his quote. Though some universal maxims exist in, mo- in most modern cultures, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, there is no single perfect system of morality with which everyone agrees. But AI could help us create one. And that's the crux of, of his entire post here. Um, really? He thinks yes. that? Mm. Yes, this is what he thinks. This is my um, skeptical reaction no, ab- here. Absolutely. Uh. So, so, how, so how can that – so let's it. go over how we – supposes that could happen so what he's essentially proposing is basically um big data that we don't really have yet and by that i mean compiling information about what everyone thinks uh is the right thing to do in various situations so so so, he's just saying it's consensus then well yeah so let's let's follow this down the rabbit hole and see where where it goes so he would say things like um well i i made a, a a connection to like you know taking all these Facebook quizzes that people take. You know, maybe we'll be taking these Facebook quizzes in the future about, about you know, these situations where you have to make a moral decision. Um, so his idea is that this information could be tracked over years Ugh. and years and even generations and that we could add, also add information about what goes into the moral decisions and their outcomes themselves. And then then you then by using the AI to analyze that immense data set, he, he says we could potentially create a better moral code. Um, so one application. No. Yes. No. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's kind of frustrating, isn't it? This is why, if you're just looking at global consensus, it's always going to be based on the majority, not based on some sort of intrinsic truth. Like, if we were to only sample, um, I don't know, really, really orthodox Christians or super or evangelical Christians, or if we're only to sample really, really extremist fundamentalist Muslims, I think the moral code that comes up would be very different. Well, yeah, he does say that, you know, since th- since this whole idea is based on the input of, of people, of, of humans, that you'd have to be very careful because instead of distilling <coughs> the best morality out of that you would you could actually distill the worst of humanity and make something truly horrific which is well, what a lot of people assume anyway that who is the arbiter of what is the best like this guy needs to go back to philosophy school absolutely i'm having a really hard time with this is he a computer coder what is his what does he do for a living uh i don't know what his what his day job is he's oh ceo and co-founder of blipper B L I P P A R. So, but it's, but it's funny you should say that because <laughs> I mean I like I like the idea personally I like the idea of, of a moral AI if, if we could if we could create one and uh, I think the idea I don't know how it would would be done whether it's you know some other method that, to produce a, a, an AI that has some sort of uh, morality that's that's similar to to ours because and I, and I think it's very important I think it's very important to do that because at some point I think we will lose control of of, of any of an artificial intelligence and all yeah. you have to do is lose control of one of them and by that I mean it, the the AI will presume 
presumably enter some sort of process that's of recursive self-improvement. And then what comes yeah. out of that black box is going to be entirely unpredictable and kind of scary and fascinating at the same time. But if it started out the process with some sort of moral AI, I think it seems that our, our chance of surviving that outcome would be better if we can, you know, have something good come in, hopefully something decent can come out. But, uh, but that's different, right? Isn't right. that the idea of like coding in beneficence? into the into the code, like basically protecting human sanctity or human life, if that's even how we want to define it, which is also very like Asimov. narrow right. so, and yeah, gross. Some, yeah, yeah, but that's different can, than right. creating morality through the use of yeah, AI. It's, it seems to me that the last thing we would want to do is have an AI algorithm determining what's moral for mm -hmm. the AI mm -hmm. and <laughs> you know, some powerful AI robot. You know, because yeah. it's going to do what we do. Uh, like our views of what's moral exactly. are anthro anthropocentric. I know, and yeah. they're and they're not good. And and actually, yeah. Forbes Forbes wrote an article on this very idea. And they, let's see, they part they posted an article recently, and they say that we have to be careful not to infect AIs with our inherent <laughs> biases and even huh. racism. There was an yeah. example, right? There was that is going to happen. Though. Yeah. How can you? Right? Yeah. Can you we're not infecting them. We're the ones you writing can't. them. Right. You can. There was, there was an example of a machine learning system that was trained on the standard corpus of, of, uh, of internet information. And the, the, uh, the system picked up, uh, human biases about gender and race and, uh, and other things. Oh my and God. So, yeah. You, you can't just like point it at people and say, behave like them because there's a lot of assholes out there that you don't want your AI acting <laughs> like. And then I had a quote, John, Grimmelman uh, is a professor of Cornell Law School. He actually studies the relationships between software, wealth, and, and power. He said that crowd, this crowdsourced morality doesn't make the AI ethical. It makes the AI ethical or unethical in the same way that large numbers of people are ethical or or exactly. Unethical. Right. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, so that, that's a good. It's just, uh, it's just consensus. So basically, so basically, we're screwed. Um, <laughs> Bob, you know what you made me think of as well? What? An AI could be hacked into. Think about sure. that. Sure. Uh, th yeah. Reaper. An article addressed that very, f that very idea, Jay. They said something like, if you try to influence the behavior of an AI, is that kind of, are you hacking it? Is that kind of a hack? Uh, when, if you try to do that, I don't know. Bob, Maybe. I love that this was your topic because I know that we're going to come back to it in a bit, but it speaks so deeply and importantly into the topic that I'm going to be covering. Oh, cool. I'm glad. Yeah. It's so good. It's such a good link. Oh, this conversation some. can serve no more purpose, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dave. Yeah, but I think the bottom line is, and we've talked about this on the show before, is that science cannot determine morality because morality includes value judgments. It could tell us what is but not what ought to be. We have to sort of determine right. what ought to be. And yeah. Whatever you know, so AI could certainly inform our thinking about morality by giving us factual information, so that we're we're applying our philosophical, you know, moral logic to to correct information. If we're making false mm -hmm. assumptions about what people do and what they feel and how they act, then that will yeah. screw up our moral calculus. Yeah, and it can open up our perspective. Yeah. Like it can it can bring in the perspectives of, of individuals that we wouldn't again calculate into the formula. But ultimately all that ends up happening then is that it gets broader and broader and less and less specific. And then it'll probably just come down to I bet you an AI's golden rule or an AI's basic morality would become what ours is, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. Yeah. Like you almost can't get more narrow than that. 
Yeah, but let me end with uh, with with how he Mitra ended his blog post. Just to be a little a little extra fair to him, so he ended with this: "There is hope for using AI to improve our moral decision making and our overall approach to important worldly issues. If we could paint a clearer picture of how our actions will affect people, we could likely improve humanity and make decisions better rooted in justice and fairness." That's kind of what he's what he was going for here. Yeah, right. Um, but okay. we have to decide what's just, and then information will help us achieve that goal that we've that we've decided. Right. You know, whatever. And that's that's kind of where he was going. Is, but it also yeah. sounds like basically what he's doing is he. It's like oh, it's so infuriating. It's like when people wake up one day like they were literally <laughs> born yesterday, and they're like, I know we'll solve an age old problem. I won't do any of the research on it that people have dedicated their entire lives and careers to. But I'll talk about fixing it with technology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, get a PhD in ethical studies and then come back and we'll have this conversation again. I would love to hear how That's your perspective That's so elitist of you, Kara. Oh, it's tr- <laughs> even, right. maybe don't even get the PhD. Do all the work that somebody would have done to get the PhD. Read all the books. Read the books that were written thousands and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Read that poem. Where we're seeing the same core arguments being made over and over and over. To be clear, intellectual elitism is a good thing. <laughs> ah. But but right. I do understand that some people don't have the opportunity to go and get a PhD for what you know, for there's a million reasons, financial, yeah, it, it doesn't cultural, have to involve, whatever. Yeah. Doesn't have to involve getting a PhD. Just, no. You're right. It means don't criticize something that you're ignorant of. Yes. You know? If you've never studied this and you're like, oh, I know I'm going to come at it like obliquely, that's great. But you have to still have done the background. Oh, it's just – it's so annoying. And I, I feel like day after day, I keep getting more and more pieces of evidence to reinforce this idea that culturally, we have just forgotten how important philosophy is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. It's not part of a lot of people's core education anymore. It's not uh, fundamental to how we talk about things. And all of these conversations really have deep roots in philosophy. Yeah. Without and the doubt. problem is that pe- people are doing philosophy and they don't realize it. Yeah. They're just doing it wrong. Or they're doing it blind. <laughs> Be- they're doing it wrong because they're doing it blind, because they don't even think they're doing it. So they're just making assumptions they don't realize are philosophical. Yes. Yes. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Bombas Socks. I am loving my, my Bombas socks, I have to say. Me too. It's funny. Last time we talked about them, Steve was like, I'm old and I love my socks. And I'm like, as I was putting on the, the socks, I'm like, I'm if I love my socks, am I old? No. No. Why? Because if you think about how important are your freaking socks, seriously, they add not only to your comfort, but they whisk the heat and the sweat away from your feet. You need good socks. You do need good socks. With Bombas, you get good socks. Every pair has my favorite part. It's this little blister tab in the back so you don't get blisters. Um, they've got really good arch support, that core part of the sock that wraps around the centermost part of your foot and holds it up. It feels really good. Um, they've got stay-up technology so they don't fall down as you're walking around and also a seamless toe. And did you guys know that for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair to Someone in need, and there's a lot of people that need socks. They've donated over 7 million pairs of socks so far. Wow. Last time I heard it was 5 million. Now it's 7 million. That's amazing. You know, that's like one of the most requested things at um, homeless shelters. So it's such a great thing that they're doing. And we want you to buy your socks at bombus.com slash skeptics today, and you'll get 20% off of your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com 
slash skeptics for 20% off. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Evan, you're, you have a little bit of an expertise in exorcism. You, you're our go-to exorcist news guy. And I understand that's boom, booming business recently. It, yeah, it, sh- it, it sure is. Uh, and you're right, Steve. It is kind of one of my pet peeves in life, I would say. So let me let me get on my soapbox for, for just a minute here. Because there's a lot you can criticize about organized religion. But in my opinion, I don't think there's much that really compares to the practice of exorcism. I mean, think about it. The belief that an evil spirit or a devil or a demon or some kind of supernatural entity can enter a person's body and take control of them. I mean, that really requires a suspension of reality that goes far beyond other tenets of a religion. You can, sure, you can believe that and have faith that a savior was born and arose from the dead. Okay. You can believe that an illiterate person living in a cave spoke with angels and carried forth the word of God. You can hold dear that bushes catch fire and the word of God spills out of that. Fine. But to have a firm belief, and I mean firm belief, that the behavior of a person or people is the result of having been taken control by a nefarious entity and the cure for it is a rite and ceremony accompanied by physical, mental, and psychological violence against that person, and that's the only way to make the evil spirits flee, I mean, that's a whole other level in of, in of itself. Americans, and this is an American poll, 60% of people believe the devil, that the devil's a real thing. 51% of people believe that a person can be possessed, and only 11% of people believe that a person can never be possessed. That means 89% <laughs> of Americans on some level, believe in a possession, whether it's mild to severe. To me, those numbers are, are striking. Yeah. When you have this sort of system, it's not surprising that essentially, I think, a market occurs. And when Steve, you were talking about markets for these sorts of things, beliefs. And I don't think this is any different. So it's not at all surprising to see a headline, and you find headlines on all sorts of exorcism stories just about every day. But The Guardian recently had this one. The Vatican is going to hold exorcist training courses after a rise in possessions. So possessions, apparently, (laughs) according to the Vatican, according to the Vatican, are on the rise. And they're holding training courses for priests in exorcism this month, April, Because they're claiming that the demands for deliverance from demonic possessions have greatly increased all over the world. The Vatican-backed International Association of Exorcists, which represents more than 200 Catholic, Anglican, and Orthodox priests, say the increase is represented by a pastoral emergency. So the demand is high, and there's not enough practiced exorcists to go around. For example, the number of people in Italy claiming to be possessed has tripled recently 500,000 people. I don't know how they got that number, but that's what they're claiming. In a year, have expressed a belief or that somebody's possessed. And they're saying that in a place like Ireland, the demand for exorcisms has risen exponentially. Uh, priests in the United States have also reported growing demand for exorcism in recent years. So there is a market, and they're looking to absolutely... I'd say take advantage of this perceived need of people being possessed and they're filling the demand is essentially, is essentially what's happening. Look, make no mistake about it. Exorcism is an industry. It's a service-based industry, but it's based on nonsense, superstition, magic, credulity. It takes advantage of the fears of the faithful. And that's inherently cruel as far as I'm concerned. It's abusive in nature. And, you know, it's... 
and it's not archaic. It's not something that just happened during the Middle Ages and sort of has waned and maybe popped its head up here and there. No, it's it's ingrained in the culture, folks. And and when you really say it's abusive in nature, I mean you mean it. Like so many examples of exorcism are linked to like sexual abuse. Absolutely. It happens all illness. the time. Yeah, well, no, like what I'm saying is that the person who's being exercised is often a young woman, yes, who's experiencing some sort of mental illness, some sort of psychotic episode or something, and then the person exercising her will sexually abuse her as part of the exorcism. Yeah. Like you read this over and over about like men, you know, pressing their genitals up against them or like deeply kissing them or binding them or doing all these terrible, disgusting things that oh, like really do qualify as sexual abuse. Yeah, and, and Kara's right. It does frequently target vulnerable populations, mm. you know, like like the mentally ill or children with autism. And it just adds another layer of abuse to them. Um, yeah, because it's usually some sort of big power. I mean, obviously, there's a power dynamic there where, like, the, the exorcist, the priest, is, like, fully in control. And, like, they'll sexually abuse these people in front of their family members. But it's like, oh, but Christ is compelling okay. them to do this. And they're like, yeah, okay. It's sanctioned criminality. I, I don't yeah. really know how mm-hmm. else to put it. All right. Thanks, Evan. Yep. Kara, you're going to tell us about the psychological power of Satan. Yeah. So um, I'm pulling some of kind of the framework from this from a really good uh article it's it's sort of an op-ed that was written a few years ago in this in scientific american about pure evil but i do think it's and in the article they cite gallup results from 2007 but of course there's more recent gallup results and evan you mentioned in your um in your story something that i was going to mention right at the top which is that 61 percent of americans according to a 2016 gallup poll believe in the devil Mm -hmm. 12 percent are unsure and only 27% of people wrote, I don't believe in the devil. Okay. Let's just r- maintain that framework as we have this conversation. That, that's, uh, yeah. To this? me, that's stunning. 2016. Exactly, yeah, right. It's not 15, 18. Yeah, 2016. So keep these, these numbers in mind. But the question here, the question that the op-ed posts and the question I think that, uh, that's important for this conversation is not whether or not the devil exists. If you must know... I don't personally believe in the devil. That is going to color some of what I say here. But the question here is not, does the devil exist or not? It's um, what are the psychological ramifications of belief in the devil? So whether or not the devil exists, if you believe in the devil, how does it affect you? And in turn, how do those beliefs affect society as a whole. So interestingly, it turns out that a bunch of studies have been done, cognitive psychology or cognitive science studies, on the what a construct that they call belief in pure evil. So you'll see it written as BPE throughout all these different studies, belief in pure evil. And apparently this construct is both um, valid and reliable, like through different factor analytic studies and other kind of psychometric ways to show that this is a, an actual construct, an actual thing that people believe in, or an actual measurable trait. We've seen this over and over. So one of the central facets of belief in pure evil is the idea that evil is innate. Like this is a very important thing that we're talking about. Evil is innate and it's immutable. So you guys can see where I'm going with this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of people believe that evil is innate and immutable. What does that mean? How does that affect the decisions that they make? And how does that affect larger decisions that we make as a society, um, as a whole? Uh, people who believe in pure evil, according to multiple studies, generally think that evil cannot be rehabilitated 
and that evil will only be eradicated by eradicating evil people. Oh, great. And this is, I know it sounds when I, when I say it with this prosody and when, uh, you know, it sounds like insanity, like nobody actually believes that, but this is a very common belief. This was a common belief. It's a common belief during almost any conflict, any war. Um, it's a common belief of the criminal justice system. So, like, keep these things in mind, okay? There are a lot of correlates of belief in pure evil. So there's some predictive uh, capability here. We're not talking causally because these kinds of studies would be impossible to do. But we have seen high correlation coefficients between a belief in pure evil and support of the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Decreased support for criminal rehabilitation, belief that the world is dangerous and vile, support of preemptive military aggression to solve conflicts, Mm -hmm. and support for torture. And it kind of makes sense, right, when you start to deconstruct the construct, like when you just look at the face validity of this, like, does somebody believe that evil is real? It exists inside of certain people, and no matter what you do, it can't be cast out because it's probably a function of the devil. If you truly, deeply believe that, why would you waste money on rehab for criminals? Mm, right. right. You're going to be the kind of person who looks at high rates of recidivism among certain crimes and and sees that as as a positive piece of evidence to support your claim, right? You're not going to look at the societal reasons for recidivism. You're not going to look at the lack of support. You're going to say, no, those people are evil. So even after they went to prison and we did our best and we tried what we could, they just went out and they committed the crimes again. But what does the social psychology say? Well, we've been studying these constructs for decades. Think back to – remember when we – focused on Milgram's obedience experiment. We did a whole uh, story about a replication of that. And I think at this point, it's a bit broken record. But the quick and dirty is that after World War II, Stanley Milgram was really interested in why people might obey even when they think that they're inflicting real harm on people, because he was trying to understand how could an entire population of people in Nazi Germany, were they all just evil? Or were they feeling some amount of pressure, some amount of social um, conformity, why were they obeying? And so he did these experiments where people were meant to shock people. It was all set up. um, And many, many people shocked them even after they thought that they had inflicted real harm or even killed them simply because the researcher said, you must go on with the experiment. Um, They could have left it any time, but they didn't give them explicit warning. And so a lot of things came out of that, a lot of changes to the way that we do psychological studies, changes to the ethics code. That and the Nuremberg trials really contributed to that. But these experiments, I think, are really important. So are Zimbardo's prison experiments. You guys have heard of the Stanford prison experiments where they sure, took yeah. the students. Yeah, yeah half yeah. them were the guards. And then the guards were all like terrible to the um, to the prisoners, of course. And so this is seems to be fundamental to what it is to be human. It seems to be that there's a lot of complicated issues at play that are social, that are cultural. I personally have a very firm belief, and I think that um, this is why I really enjoyed the recent Netflix show. Do you guys, did you guys all watch Mindhunter? Yeah, I did Oh, not. it's so good. Is it? And so, yes, it's so good. And so what Mindhunter really follows, and, you know, obviously a lot of it is fictionalized, the era in the FBI when the manner of thinking went from these murderers 
are evil incarnate. They have evil inside of them and we need to eradicate them to what is it psychologically about these people that makes them commit murder? And if we start to understand them from a profile perspective, perhaps we can do something about this. Um, and that was a really big shift. And I still think we're lagging in the criminal justice system in America. And you do see that are, there are certain sects of people who want to understand the why. And there are certain groups of people who are like, I don't care what the why is. This person is fundamentally evil and we should put them to death. I personally have a firm belief that most quote unquote evil things are done out of some form of desperation, whether it's social control, manipulation, it's my last opportunity I have, I'm doing it to save my own life, or I'm experiencing some sort of cognitive distortion that is putting me in a position where this seems like the best available option. Regardless, there's usually motive, right? There's usually some sort of explanation. That's why personally, I'm much more afraid of like an adolescent with a gun than I am of an adult with a gun. Because I think that adults with guns are desperate and adolescents with guns are, um, shall we say, less understanding of mortality. Well, um, the, yeah, they're un, their unfully developed brain. <laughs> and well, and not just their brain, but their thoughts. Like, regardless if we if we we try to explain it away from a neurological perspective, but we simply just look at a cultural, societal, developmental perspective. Like, you are less aware of mortality when you're young. You think you're invincible. Like, you just do yeah. dumb crap when you're young that you would never do when you're older. Yeah, right. Because but Kara, getting getting back to your your primary point there, that you think most people. Uh, I agree. I think most people think of themselves as the good guys, right? In their narrative. Sure. Yeah. Right? If well, in the movie about them, they're the hero. They're the good guy. And they have a reason for doing what they're doing, whether it's necessity, desperation, yeah. as you say, or ideology, belief, whatever. But the big caveat to that is, yeah, 1% of the population or whatever are psychopaths. There are people exactly. that are just neurologically atypical in that they are they, – they lack empathy and that lack of empathy makes them evil. If if that's how you want to define it. But most people with psychopathy don't commit violent crimes. Like that's the thing. Just because they lack empathy doesn't then motivate them to commit violent crimes. Some people do. But usually you can link those people up with really neglectful or abusive childhoods or some other explanation. And you're right. There's still some percentage of a percentage of people where you can't explain it. Like they have psychopathy, they have the neurological profile, they had a perfectly okay childhood, yet still they grew up to be a serial rapist or a serial murderer. And it does seem like that lack of empathy just didn't prevent them. But I think yeah. the idea that just because somebody's a psychopath, they're going to commit crimes is kind of, I know you're not saying this. Oh but, yeah, I wasn't saying that. Yeah, yeah, I know you're not. But like it would be a naive viewpoint and I think a lot of people have it that like the only thing preventing us from just going out and murdering all day is that like we we have empathy that that would hurt. But it's like, no, well, I just don't want to go out and murder. Worse than that, Kara, there, I mean, there's a lot of people who believe in every time I've, – I've been in this discussion many times. Mm -hmm. They think that if it wasn't fear of hell, fear yeah. of religious sure. you know, retribution, mm -hmm. that we yeah. would be out raping and stealing and pillaging all the time. Oh, That's completely. Sort of the natural state of humanity is that, that – is mm -hmm. to be barbaric. Yeah, it's, it's silly. It's like really, you'd be out. You would be out raping people if you weren't afraid of going into hell. That's the kind of person you are. I don't think so. And that naive argument is the same place that the argument for morals coming from religion is. Yeah, right. A that's, lot of people argue that you from. can't. Yeah, you can't be moral without religion. It, I see parallels.
parallels between that argument and the anti LGBTQ rights argument that somehow if we make it so that people of any orientation can get married, it threatens the sanctity of a straight marriage as if the only thing keeping straight people from going out and having a bunch of gay sex is that it's like not legal. Like I've, I've never understood these kinds of arguments. It makes no sense. But, but regardless of that, I think the fundamental thing here is the question of is evil a construct at all? I personally don't believe in evil the way that it's been defined. Mm-hmm. I yeah, personally, yeah, yeah I think I that you, it's nebulous. It's, it's all on a continuum and there are justifications for a lot of things in people's lives. And the truth of the matter is that calling something evil is a cop out. It means you don't have to study it. You don't have to understand it. And you can just throw it in the untouchable book bucket. And once something's in the untouchable bucket, I can write them off. I can continue deeply into my tribalism and I can say, you know, whether it's a person or an entire group, there's something fundamentally unfixable and inhuman about them. And I can treat them as if they are lesser than. So I actually think that believing in evil is kind of the root of evil in our society. <laughs> can, can an individual action be evil? I wouldn't use the word evil. That's the thing. It's the same way that I don't like to use the word God for things that aren't like a standard Judeo-Christian God. Mm -hmm. I just think that the word has been tainted. And I hear people all the time around me in like New Age LA who are like, I don't believe in God like in the – it's like God with a little g, you know? (laughs) It's like it's like there's just like a spiritual – you know, it's like science God. And I'm like, stop saying God. God. (laughs) You know what people think when you say the word God. Call it something else. It's it's a tainted word, and I feel the same way about the word evil. I think yeah. it evokes religious baggage. connotation. Yeah, yeah. Belief in demonic possession. Getting back to Evans' item is the mm-hmm. is the extension of that. It's the extension of the belief in evil. Yeah, there is some inherently evil force within you. Yeah, and and maybe the only chance you have is to exercise it out of you. Otherwise, you are just the devil now, and. You can't be redeemed. And I think this also goes back to um, to Bob's item in a major way because this is a fundamental facet of what specific uh, philosophical uh, explanations of morality are. Some people have a belief in pure evil and it informs their view of morality and some people don't. And those those two viewpoints are really, really different. And are we talking about the AI believing in evil or not? Because we kept even throwing around terms like good and evil. But if those things are just constructs that aren't real. Is there an evolutionary pressure to believe something is evil or someone is evil? I mean, yeah, to believe that something is dangerous maybe or bad. But I think evil is like super specific. Yeah, but it is is tied up with tribalism, with ideology, which are, you know, there there does appear to be – like the uh, tribalism is a universal human trait. We do tend to separate the world into us versus them, and we attribute negative traits to them. One of which could be at the extreme end being evil, right? Yeah, and that and, really is the extreme end. Like at what point? So if you look at Nazi Germany, which a lot of people like to say, you know, Hitler was evil. The Nazis were evil. We often will use that in a modern Western society as like the uh, epitome of evil. Is like yeah, right. Nazi Germany. The they, they thought they were even. They thought they were the good guys yeah they thought jews were evil (laughs) like that's the that's the effed up part you know what i mean with the japanese too i mean Mm -hmm. yeah and it helps right it's like it's a useful means of social control like you can really sell a war if you can sell the idea the tribalistic idea that this certain group is fundamentally evil right you demonize them yes you demonize them exactly Ah, 
No, it okay. is a way. It is a way to dehumanize the enemy, which we need mm-hmm. to do because mm-hmm. we have simultaneously we have you know, except for the people who are psychopaths, we have empathy, right? Yep. We and it, it's we we have would have a hard time killing another person because of our empathy, and so we have to, in a way, think of them as less than human in order to be able to emotionally accept the fact that it's okay to kill them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It justifies it. Well, there's that, there's that, you know, I say funny, but like ironic rule of movies where you have basically carte blanche to kill as many certain kinds of things as you want without stepping over a line. It's like you can, you can kill unlimited undead insects, robots, robots, robots and Nazis. Definitely. Like and monsters Nazis, yeah. and not, <laughs> Nazis are on yeah. of the five things you can kill with with abandon. Mm-hmm. Nazis are on the list mm-hmm. because they have they are they're like stormtroopers, right? They're they're faceless, nameless drones. In, they are their uniform. They are they are there to be killed indiscriminately, right? And and I'm glad you mentioned stormtroopers because that has always been one of my biggest problems. I, I apologize, Jay, <laughs> with Star Wars. I like Star Wars a lot and I think it's really fun, but I think when people give it too much credit, to me, it is a religious allegory and it's just a story oh, no about doubt. good, good versus evil. And to me, that's a thin oh, it's a story. Very old story. It's, yes. it's, but it's also a thin concept to begin with. And what I like is in, when they show fallibility of the quote unquote evil people, like I really, really like Adam Driver's character, um, Kylo Ren, because you actually see that there's good in him and you see like the idea and even, um, Darth Vader, like when you see somebody fall to the dark side, like that they weren't always like that. I think that helps, but it is, I think a little bit too clean cut and I'm not sure it's the best story to be telling children that just the world is is dark and and light it's good and evil and it's that simple yeah i agree with you whoa sorry jay (laughs) (laughs) i I know jay agrees with that because jay and i run a star wars game and yeah we've taken the jedi philosophy that's like our our internal critique of the jedi philosophy in the game (laughs) is that it's too black and white man it's broken yeah it's broken all right jay you have a who's that noisy? So this week I am going to put the normal who's that noisy on hold because I made a special episode 666 noisy for everyone. This is a special noisy. Yay. If you think you know the answer, you can email me the, the regular way. Here is this week's noisy. That was made evil for you, Bob. It's rats fleeing a church. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. (laughs) So, guys, I wanted to say 666 episodes. I mean, Carrie, you've been here for how many years now? I don't even know. Three years. (laughs) I've probably been here for like 100 of them, right? Three years. No, more. Oh, three years. So, like 150 of them. Almost 150 episodes. Wow. Yeah. But 666 episodes, I mean, that's we're coming up on 14 years. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, that is you guys right. are old. When are we going to retire? <laughs> Thanks, Kara. You kidding me? I, you You're know, welcome. I, where's my walker? <laughs> I really love doing the show, and I, I mean, Kara, you make it a lot of fun. You're, Aww, you're just you're a scream behind the scenes, like the things that people don't know. You are so much fun to work with. <laughs> thanks. 
you know, I love, I really love working with Steve on the studio and all the stuff that we do behind the scenes. And Bob and Ev, you two guys have like, I can't tell you how many times you guys have made me laugh so hard that my head hurt. You're <laughs> Evan just did it tonight, for Christ's sake. You're probably going to have it edited out, but Evan said something <laughs> very happen. funny tonight. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to thank you guys. 666 wonderfully evil episodes. <laughs> well, you're welcome, Jay, and likewise. Right back at you. We're going to do one quick email. This one is it comes- an evil email? It isn't. <laughs> our, listeners, our listeners didn't send in any evil emails for 666. We're disappointed. All right. This one comes from Trace, Trace Moore. And Trace writes, in the past few years, I've heard a lot about avoiding acidic foods in favor of a more alkaline-focused diet. Everything mm. I Google seems to point towards avoiding acidic foods like coffee. It seems to me that most evidence is anecdotal and or contradictory. Have you guys discussed this on the show or written about this in the past? I'd love to hear your take on the movement. That's a great question, Trace. This one has a very straightforward answer. The answer is this is 100% complete horseshit. Yay! Uh, right. Next. There's really no. There's no nuance here at all. But also, there's only like five alkaline foods. I mean, <laughs> well, that's a. Sh- I just randomly made up that number. Like, but honestly, most food is acidic. Like, milk is acidic. So people don't think about that. No. The, the thing is, the, unless you are consuming literal poison, <laughs> like pure like acid. Rap. No, it's actually it's actually not. I mean, you could drink. Acid, and like oh, that's really- true because Coca Cola is like two, like a isn't that um, a pH of like three? It's it's pretty low. It's pretty low because it's like there's a lot of like citric acid in it, and oh, orange juice is really acidic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. not it's not whether or not it's acidic or basic. It's it's how your body metabolizes it. Mm-hmm. So there are certain poisons like methyl alcohol, right? It, which mm-hmm. which we know about because really desperate alcoholics, like on the street, desperate you know alcoholics will drink anything, and they will sometimes drink rubbing alcohol or you know methyl Ugh. alcohol. Yeah, to, to yeah, get drunk. and that might make you go blind. And that hazel. that gives yeah. you acidosis because your mm-hmm. body can't metabolize it properly. It, yeah. The byproduct of it actually acidifies the blood. Well, and that's the important thing, right? Like your blood is not going to go acidic easily you it can't it'll kill you that's why we have buffers right exactly so the the normal ph is very tightly regulated between 7.35 and 7.45 and there are a couple of main mechanisms by which your body will keep the blood in that one is your breathing right cuz so mm-hmm. carbon dioxide is acidic and if your blood gets too acidic your breathing rate increases to blow off more co2 to get more acid out of the blood and to raise the pH to make it more basic. So moment to moment, your breathing rate is tweaking your blood's pH to keep it within that narrow range. Did you know that's actually why some people breathe in a bag when they're hyperventilating? It's not because common wisdom might tell you it's because you need more oxygen or something. No, it's because you're blowing off too much CO2 CO2 too fast and you need to recapture it. Otherwise, you're your blood um, pH is actually going up. Oh, too high. Yeah. So they yeah. have what's called a respiratory alkalosis because they are – because of anxiety or whatever. Often it's like people have like a an asthma attack. It makes them anxious and they feel air hungry. So they actually start to hyperventilate. Um, and so that overrides the normal control of their respiration and then they start blowing off too much CO2. So they breathe in a bag to capture that CO2 so they, they to normalize their pH again. 
Thank um, you. I never knew why that happened. Yeah, like isn't I that great? That. Yeah, yeah. But we also have other buffers too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not the, just the, carbonic so acid. Met, then there's metabolic uh, mm-hmm. factors as well. So your kidneys, etc. Um, and so yeah, this is an elaborate network that evolved over millions of years to keep the blood in a very narrow range. And what you eat has zero effect on it unless you're <laughs> drinking rubbing alcohol or something or whatever, some similar type of poison that. that yeah, but nothing that's like system. marketed as food. No, there is no food. There is nothing that you're supposed to consume that will change the pH of your blood, period. So that's utter nonsense. It doesn't, there's no such thing as an acidic or alkaline diet or whatever. It has no effect on health. That's made up BS. There is no science to it at all. Some people say, but isn't it bad for your you know, digestive tract? And it's like, no, your stomach is full of gastric acid. It's yeah. very it's, acidic. It's pretty potent like, stuff too. Yeah, it's pretty potent. So anything you eat goes into that anyway. Like so it's okay if it's already slowly like that to read. Yeah, yeah. It's like just to be clear, your stomach is like a pH of around two or two point five. Like it's pretty low. But also, I think the one thing that there might be truth to this, just because I know we'll get emails, is that yes, if you're always drinking crazy acidic drinks, it's not that great for your teeth. Yeah, yeah, but that's not it has to do with the acidity of your body or your health. No, it's yeah. not about like, you know, these woo-woo like health trends of I need to drink alkaline water. Bullshit. And also alkaline water is so expensive. It's such a stupid thing. It's like they make the water pH 7.8 and then they charge three times as much for the bottle. It does nothing. You don't need to be drinking alkaline water. But yes, if all you drink is coffee and Coke and orange juice, like your dentist might have some words with you. Okay, so thanks for that question. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. You guys know that we love The Great Courses. Plus, we talk about it a lot, and that's because we love to keep learning in or out of school. And that's why you listen to the SGU, isn't it, really? Like, because you like to learn stuff. The Great Courses Plus is awesome because it's not just about science. It's not just about psychology, although all of those things are covered and covered in depth. You can also learn about photography, about cooking, about all sorts of different topics. Kara, you could even learn about forensic science and learn a new language. And these courses are presented by award-winning experts. I love how flexible it is. You could watch The Great Courses Plus on any smartphone, tablet, laptop, TV, and of course, your handy tricorder. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, we're recommending you check out The Theory of Everything, the quest to explain Nothing less than all reality. Oh, God. By Dr. Don Lincoln, uh, who explores the contributions of Newton, Einstein, and other luminaries in our understanding of the way we see the universe. Sounds like a cool course. And we want you to sign up for The Great Courses Plus right now. And as a listener of our show, you'll receive a free trial to enjoy any of their special courses by going to our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. So go ahead and start your free trial today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Is it evil? <laughs> what, what do you think the theme <laughs> is? <laughs> I'm expecting this. The theme is serial killers. 
Ooh, fun. I mean, sorry, that was pretty morbid. Yeah. Take that special <laughs> Like Count Chocula? Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, here we go. Item number one, Dr. Harold Shipman killed 250 people, forged their wills to inherit their money, and had their bodies cremated to hide the evidence. Item number two, Pedro Lopez was convicted of murdering over 300 girls after a flash flood uncovered a mass grave of his victims. And item number three, Robert Ressler was a police officer who confessed to the rape and murder of 61 prostitutes he had previously arrested. Bob, why don't you go first? Wow. I mean, that's ambitious. This, the, this <laughs> shipment dude, 250 people forged their wills to inherit their money and then, and then have the ability to have them cremated. That, uh, that, I, I may need to just pick that because that's just insane that you could pull that off. Think about it. I mean, no, no other family. I guess you, if you pick your victims well enough, then the other, you know, family isn't an issue, I guess. But damn. Oh, I may just have to pick them. Let me let me look at the second one here. This one, yeah, three hundred people, three hundred girls. After a flash flood uncovered the mass grave, I mean, what is he burying them? You know, a foot under the ground. I, I mean, I know flash floods can be pretty nasty, but you got to bury those bodies deep. Even a flash flood can't un- uncover them. So that one's giving me a little pause. Uh, the police officer one, I'm totally buying. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, because it's only sixty one. Not as dramatic as three hundred or two hundred and fifty. Yeah, um, th- this this will, dude. I'm not buying. He's he forged two hundred and fifty wills. I mean, I mean, you think the judge would be like, "Haven't I seen you like twenty times already? What's going on?" Or I mean, was it in a different town? <laughs> Whatever. That's just way too many wills to forge. Okay, Kara. Doctor Shipman killed two hundred fifty people. I've never heard of him. Two hundred fifty is a lot for somebody I've never heard of. Urgh, I feel like I've heard of a lot of the big ones. Pedro Lopez. Okay. This may sound racially motivated, but there are a lot of like drug lord types that didn't like if these aren't just American serial killers, then I wouldn't probably know their names. And I feel like that's a possibility. 300 girls in America, we'd know this dude's name, but I don't know. So Shipman, 250 people. That one, I don't I don't know if I'm buying it, but what if it also wasn't in America? Robert Ressler, police officer, confessed to the rape and murder of 61 prostitutes. I thought his name was like... I'm going to go with Robert Ressler. I think that that's somebody else. I think his name's like Yurtz. Okay, Evan? Well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) He didn't pick anybody we know of. Bob makes a good point about the forging of the wills. Although Although you may only need one basic template, sort of, and just, you know sign their name in one spot it wouldn't be hard per se and then 250 you don't go see the same judge for all of them you know it's got to be spread out a little bit well um, he was a doctor what if he was like a cancer doctor he's a doctor right but a, that he's the a doctor just the fact that he's a doctor that he had access to a crematorium is that what in, if he worked in a hospital in sync is that yeah right i mean so if you're a doctor you may have access to something like that it's not you know, as opposed to the likes of, say, Pedro Lopez, who clearly didn't have <laughs> access to a crematorium. And uh, the flash flood uncovered a mass grave of victims. That means you got you to bury all the girls in the same spot, essentially. Yeah, okay, all right, I think that one. So I'll go with Kara. I'll just say it's the Robert wrestler one. I really don't know which one it is, but 
I, I'm not nothing is kind of you know giving me a little spark there. I got nothing on that one, so I'll say the Robert Wrestler one is also fiction. Okay, and Jay. All right, so the first one here about Doctor Harold Shipman, and he killed 250 people. Uh, this is the one where he forged their wills. Yeah, there's something about this story that rings true. I could totally see someone doing that. I wish I knew what year this happened in, because the farther back, the more likely it is. I, I would imagine that he, mm. the wills were forged. Then he cremated the bodies. Of high, yeah, I, I think that one is true. The second one about Pedro Lopez, uh, convicted of murdering over 300 girls after a flash flood. On, wow, I mean, come on, that is terrible. Yes, and the, I, I hear what Kara is saying about the name Robert Ressler. That's R E S S L E R, not wrestler like a you know. W R. Yeah. Hulk Hogan. Um, please, I'll confess to the rape and murder of 61 prostitutes. I'm going to agree with the gang and say that the third one is the fake. All right. So you all agree on Pedro Lopez. So we'll start. There. Not really, just so you know. <laughs> I'm like not very firm in my conviction on this one. Uh, okay. Noted. <laughs> Pedro we, Lopez we was convicted agree. of murdering. You all agree that number two is real. That's why I'm saying. So anyway, Pedro Lopez was convicted of murdering over 300 girls after a flash flood uncovered a mass grave of his victims. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. No yes. way. Or, or so he he can't have been an American serial killer. No, Colombian. Gotcha. Was he a drug lord? No. Oh, but uh, no. <laughs> raping really and killing and more than 300 girls across South America. So he would, he would lure Jesus. them to secluded areas, rape them, and then strangle them to death. Now, uh, but he buried them all in the same spot? No, but just a lot of them. You know, there okay. was like 50, that, 50, 53 bodies were discovered in one grave. That's so, so, that's so evil. Yeah. Yeah, Kara, <laughs> what do you think of that? Yeah, that's evil, Carol. He, so he was arrested after he tried to abduct a girl and she got away from him. And then he became trapped by market traders, it says. And then – so he got arrested. Then he – while arrested, he confessed. He said, yeah, I've, I've murdered over 300 girls. And the police didn't believe him. Well, yeah, because that's a really high number. Yeah. Uh, until a flash flood uncovered a mass grave with over 50 of his victims in it. They're like, oh, you mean those girls? Yes. Yeah. Those fifty corpses. Yeah. Wow. Oh my wow, gosh. Did wow. did anybody ever like? Is he probably has psychopathy, right? Like, I, did anybody ever study like why he horrible? Uh, that I don't know. Hmm, interesting. He was set to evil, but he was a rapist, right? He was. Yeah. He was. He yeah, raped, he was a rapist he raped each killer. of them. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Um, he was sentenced in 1980, imprisoned, uh, served 18 years in Ecuador, and then he was deported to Colombia, where he was rearrested and and spent 202. I mean, he was rearrested in 2002 and sentenced to life. Oh, okay. Yeah. The uh, what's interesting is uh, another guy. This so he the, so uh, Lopez is the number one serial killer in the world in terms of the body count. Wow, man. Um, number three is a guy named Daniel Barbosa. Um, also Colombian and Ecuador. Huh. That's a bummer and yeah. scary. Killed, raped and killed over 150 young girls. But wait, are these just the ad, the ones they admitted to or is there evidence supporting that the number yeah, was this that is, high? The, 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 that, there was evidence supporting. Wow. Because yeah. a lot of times it seems like guys like this will admit to like three times as many. Yeah. But so they only guy, have the bodies of, you know, however many. This guy was convicted in 1989 and, and sentenced to only 16 years in prison. What? Which is the maximum. Where? 
Ecuador. It's the maximum sentence available in Ecuador. Apparently in Ecuador, they can't give you more than 16 years in prison. Brazil has a weird law. So you can't spend more than 30 years in prison in Brazil, no matter what the crime, apparently. To me, that makes more sense and you can only get 16. But maybe is that why here in the States, people get multiple sentences? They get like one sentence for each. Remember the other guy, the other guy Lopez, after the after his stint, was sent to Colombia to finish out the rest of his sentence. Yeah, Uh, this guy was killed, was murdered in prison by the cousin of one of his victims. Oh, there you go. So he didn't get even through the sixteen years. All right, yeah. Let's go back to number one. Doctor Harold Shipman killed two hundred fifty people, forged their wills to inherit their money, and had the bodies cremated to hide the evidence. Bob thinks this one is the fiction. The rest of you thinks this one is science. And this one is say it science. Ah, what? Ha ha! God damn it! (laughs) English doctor, Doctor Elsheb, the English doctor. I knew he wasn't American either. There's no way. And yeah, so if you if he was like a had a reputation of being a caring physician in his local community, and uh, he had the time and the ability to choose his victims very specifically, and he eventually was caught because. He of the family of of one of his victims were just tenacious. So he uh, killed a Kathleen Grundy, who was a, an eighty one year old wealthy widow. He would kill his victims by giving them a lethal injection of of opiates. Now, oh, interesting. A couple so of everybody who came through his practice died of an opiate. Well, yeah, opiates. a couple of couple <laughs> of coroners noticed that. That's the yeah. kind of thing that you know they're they're supposed to notice. That not only was there a suspiciously high number of deaths, period, in his practice, but deaths where the victims were found in similar conditions, dressed, sitting in a chair. Just dead, <laughs> you know, sitting in a chair. Right? <laughs> they and, were found uh, really dead. Yeah. Wait, so why wouldn't he have been able to get away with? I'm like retroactively. I'm what did they call it? Monday morning quarterbacking here. Why wasn't he like a hospice doctor? Wouldn't because like lots of people are on opiates when they're dying. Like he could have killed way more people that way. Yeah, I suppose. So. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, like he he was in the wrong but then, practice. Uh, Kathleen Grundy's daughter just was. Uh, suspicious about the way her mother died. And then the lawyer, you know, because then the will came forward. It's like, oh, she left a lot, a lot of her money to this doctor. And then the, the uh, lawyer was convinced, however, that it was a forgery. And it, because it was. Mm. And that's how they caught him. Yeah, he got that, too greedy. Yeah, that's how they caught him. Yeah, you got to stop at 200. Why would everybody leave their doctor their money? I mean, I feel like wouldn't the alarm bells go off after like 30 people? Did yeah, that I, mean, I don't know that he's going to every single victim, but that was the pattern. Mm. And then he also would then forge uh, or countersign the orders to have their bodies cremated. But, yeah. Of course, yeah. But they were able well, yeah, to that's... exhume even the cremains and show – Cremains? Wait, is that really? Thing? Yeah. Of Wait. course that's a thing. Heard that? You guys have never heard that word? Holy no. crap. Yeah. You guys don't read about death Holy enough. Crap. You guys did not watch Six Feet Under, apparently. No. Or autopsy. The autopsy. What was it called? Autopsy Files? I yeah. I don't remember. Those That's those awesome. Are, those shows are dead to me. And you're able to, you're able to identify, to detect the opiates even in the cremains. Wow. And then they started looking at his other patients who died and they all had. They all had the opiates in their remains. What a um, dummy. 
Took took a long time to yeah, take that I mean, guy down. All right, all of that means that Robert Ressler was a police officer who confessed to the rape and murder of 61 prostitutes he had previously arrested is the fiction because you know who Robert Ressler was? That does sound familiar. He was the Mm -hmm. FBI agent who played a significant role in developing psychological profiling of violent offenders and coined the term serial killer. I think I saw that on a documentary. He's an amalgamation of the characters in Mindhunter. Yeah, the character, the characters in Mindhunter mm-hmm. are an amalgamation. Yes, of him. Of You're him. right. Thank yes. you. Yes. Yes. He's Wait. a real person. Who? Yeah. So who raped and murdered 61 prostitutes? Nobody. I made that uh, up. <laughs> who am I thinking of? Who is Robert um, Yurks? Yurks. I mean, other people have raped and killed prostitutes, but not. Uh, I I put the, the I strung these details together. Robert Yurts is a eugenicist. I must have read about him recently for school. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he's a psychologist. Mm. He got Gosh. it right for the wrong reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, no, look, look, look. Robert. This is amazing. I put in Robert Yurt's serial killer, and look what came up. Somebody named Robert Yates, who killed a bunch of prostitutes. Oh, my coincidence. God. <laughs> Robert Lee Yates, American serial killer from Spokane, Washington, who killed at least 13 prostitutes. He Something was. in those dusty old cobwebs up there. Yeah, the, not a lot of <laughs> Americans in the in the top ten here. Mm-hmm. So, who do you think is the number one serial killer in the United States? Uh, was it the, the clown guy? Like, was it the clown guy? Son of Sam, five. Ted Bundy, Kermit Gosnell. Number five killed at least seventy women. The Zodiac. green, the Green River Killer. Don't know. Who is that, Steve? Gary Ridgway. Gary Ridgway. What year was that? Arrested in 2001 for for murders that he committed in the 1980s and 1990s. Where's the Green River? It's in Washington State. Dang, Washington. He avoided the death penalty by giving the police the uh, location of all where he dumped his victims. He was. Yeah, it's common for closure. Five were dumped in the Green River. The press nicknamed him the Green River Killer. Oh, that was number five overall. That was worldwide, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh. I thought you were reading the top five Americans. So no, 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 he was, he was number, one, number one American, top five overall. Gotcha. So the ones that have all the lore around them didn't even kill the most people. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, so John Wayne Gacy is uh, a very um, well-known serial killer mm-hmm. in the U.S., uh, assaulted and murdered 33 teenage boys oh in 1972 and 1978. Buried the victims in the crawl space under his home. Oh, how many people did Ted Bundy kill? Ted Bundy, yeah. So Ted Bundy, so he killed in the 1970s. He decapitated at least 12 victims and kept the severed heads in his apartment as trophies. Twice, wow, this guy twice managed to escape from police after being arrested. Wow. Yeah, I think that's why he has so much lore around him. He confessed to 30, but that's the thing. It's really common, right? That like they'll confess to way more than they actually know about. And so then you don't know. Well, and also if part of your deal is like, uh, not just psychopathy, but also like narcissism, and you yeah. like want to go down in history, then you're gonna make you're gonna be like more grandiose. And then there's what Jeffrey Dahmer. You guys remember Jeffrey Dahmer? Yeah. Sure. Oh yeah, very famous. Murdered and dismembered seventeen boys between 1978 and 1991. And didn't he cannibalize some? Yeah, yeah. necrophilia, yeah, yeah. cannibalism. That's why these people are the most famous because people because it's like so taboo. And he was right. murdered in prison, if I'm not mistaken. Beaten to death by Christopher Scarver, a fellow inmate. Yeah. yeah. And then, mm-hmm. uh, Kara, you'll you'll recognize Edmund Kemper from yes, Mindhunter. Kemper, yeah, from Mindhunter. 
the co-ed killer. Mm-hmm. He, he murdered uh, his grandparents when he was 15. So talk about a troubled childhood, right? Yeah. Later dis- killed and dismembered six female hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area. He then murdered his mother. And in, in the show Mindhunters, they go into a lot more detail about that. He talks very creepily about what he did to his mother's corpse after he cut off her head. He also was reported to have an IQ of 145. Yeah. Okay. So, and like, yeah, and the guy who plays him in Mindhunter is so good. Yeah, very, very good. The actor mm-hmm. who plays him is great. <laughs> David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer. Yeah. 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 He Terrorized New York City in the 1977. 76, right? Yeah. Arrested the in Zodiac Killer? Uh, How many did he kill? Who was the Zodiac Four men killer? and three women. Oh, that's not that many. I think the reason he's famous is because he's still at large. Never was arrested. She was. No, nobody, nobody even knows who he is. Like, he doesn't yeah. have a name. He's just called the Zodiac Killer. Who is the most famous uh, serial killer in history? Charles Manson, who never actually killed anybody by hand. I think, I think, I think it has to be Jack the Ripper, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 History, yeah. yeah. He killed probably. prostitutes, too. Yeah. And, yeah. and never definitively identified. Lots mm. of theories, interesting evidence, good sort of oh. historical whodunit, but he yeah, could still be out Yeah, his name is still there. just Jack the Ripper. Yeah, he doesn't have a name. Probably wasn't even right, the name. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jack. he could, Jay, he could still be out there if you believe in the time travel theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that movie, what was it, Time After Time? Good <laughs> yes, Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell, yeah. It was a good movie. It was. He even had a brief stint on Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> right? There was oh, the episode yeah. and Babylon Five. Yeah, Babylon Five. All right. Well, well done, Kara, Jay, Thanks. and Evan. Yeah. Thank you. Um, gotta love those confused cobwebs. I hope you all go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thanks, Bob. And what? What? Well, what better way to end this sh- the episode six six six? I know. Yes. Go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss the devil. <laughs> Evan, do you have an evil quote for us? I do have an evil quote. No, it's actually an anti-evil quote. (laughs) There is no such thing as the devil, just as there is no such thing as fairies, imps, or goblins. The two largest religions in the world, Christianity and Islam, teach that there is a devil, and they are wrong. There is no evidence for such a thing, not a shred. It's simply something that that germinated from the unscientific, irrational minds of early humans who tried their best to explain why bad things happen to good people and why good people sometimes do bad things and why there is so much needless suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. And that was written by Dr. Phil Zuckerman, professor of sociology and secular studies at Pitzer College. Oh, cool. Professor of secular studies? I like it. Yes, I do too. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like a good job. So last week we uh, we did, had a really great interview with Mark Linus. Only Jay and I were on the interview. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to hear it. But the interview actually went for more than 50 minutes. I put uh, less than half of that up on the episode. So the full episode is now up and available as premium content for our legacy and Patreon premium members. We We go on from GMOs to talk about nuclear power and and climate change and how those all relate to each other is a really really good discussion so uh and we will be doing that as as uh, whenever we do an interview you know we try to to do we do a long interview so that we have you know the unedited interview for premium content and then we use an excerpt from it for the for the regular show so anyway check that out and all the other premium content that we have uh available 
for our members. And as always, we appreciate the support of our members. We try to give you guys back as much as we can. All right. Well, thanks again, guys. Sure, man. Thanks, Steve. Hey, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. And don't forget about those awesome Bombas socks. They're made from premium content to stay warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Every pair comes with a built-in blister tab, innovative arch support, stay-up technology, and a seamless toe with many colors, patterns, lengths, and styles to choose from. Buy your new socks at bombas.com slash skeptics today and get 20% off your first purchase.